Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Okay, Revelation 14, before we go through the book, I want to give just a brief setup from last week because chapters and verses were added much later after the books were written. And so the end of 13 up to 14 verses 1 through 5 are actually kind of connected in the same way. We ended last week, the end of 13, talking about the dragon's plans to create this imposter trinity. And so what we see is, um, and as we're just kind of going through the book of Revelation, we saw these seals that were broken. We saw these trumpets that were blown by these angels pronouncing declarations over the earth. And around chapter 11, the seventh angel blew the seventh trumpet, and we see that the sky just split open, and the temple is there for everyone to see. And then there's this interlude. We go into chapter 12, and then we're told that John sees this vision, and this vision includes this dragon and this woman and this child. And what we see storytelling-wise within this book is that right at the beginning of 12, right after the seventh trumpet is blown, there's a vision given to John to give context for what's coming next. Because what's coming next is a series of judgments God's wrath, bowls of wrath that are going to be poured out on the earth. And unless you understand the condition of the earth and the people who live in it, then these seven bowls don't make sense. They just seem cruel. Can you turn me down a little bit? Thanks. They seem cruel. So what John is given from God is this vision beginning in 12 that gives context for what's happening on the earth the moment Jesus rises from the dead and takes his seat at the right hand of the Father, and we're told that he is given authority over the nations. The moment that Jesus exercises authority over the nations, a war breaks out in heaven. And we're told that this dragon who was unable to destroy this child, who was Jesus, makes war with essentially the angels in heaven and is kicked out of heaven. He loses his authority in heaven and he's thrown down to the earth and he makes a decision to start making war against God's people here on earth. And we see that he tries to make war against God's people as a whole, the church, and the gates of hell are not prevailing against that. So he changes tactics and he goes and starts attacking individual believers with the same kind of deception that he's always worked against God's people. Now, right at the beginning of 13, we see that that tactic of attacking individuals starts ramping up the closer we get towards the end of time and the full strategy of the enemy is released. The dragon's goal is not to spend all of his time attacking individuals, although he does like doing that. His end goal is to present himself to the nations as, as God, the God, the only God. And in order to do that, he forms this fake trinity, just like Yahweh, God has a trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The dragon's goal, as we learned in 13, is to create this fake trinity. He positions himself as Yahweh, and he creates a fake savior, a fake son, called the Antichrist, this beast that rises up out of the sea. And he doesn't stop there. Then he goes to the earth and he, rise, he raises another beast up out of the earth, this false prophet who create, is essentially an imposter Holy Spirit who tries to validate the work of the Antichrist, the first beast, and encourages all the nations to worship this Antichrist beast. 
And in the same way that God marked his people back in Revelation chapter seven, the Antichrist encourages the nations of the world who don't follow the lamb to get marked with his own mark, the mark of the beast. So Revelation chapter 13 ended with this picture. From the moment Jesus rose to the dead to the end of time when he returns again, the work of the dragon is progressively perpetuating through time and getting more and more escalated as the dragon starts gathering more support and getting more nations on his side and getting and rallying more support among the people of the earth. It culminates in this end where there's only two groups of people left. There are people on planet earth who are marked and follow and worship the dragon and there are people on earth who are marked and worship and follow the lamb. That's where we ended at 13. This picture of Satan's people, the nations of the earth who have, who have rejected God and his lamb and, and his authority over them and has thrown all of their power and all of their support behind the dragon and the entire world is on team dragon and they're marked with his mark. Revelation 14 picks up with a contrast to that picture. And that's why these two chapters are connected a little bit. You've got the dragon's followers, and now we're about to pull our attention back to the lamb's followers in 14, one through five. So that's where we're headed today. So if you have your Bibles, go to Revelation chapter 14. We're going to pick up in verse 1. It says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And who is this group? This is the group from Revelation chapter seven. And we talked about the symbolic interpretation, the literal interpretation, we'll get back to that in a minute, but these are the people from Revelation chapter seven. These are God's people who have been marked by God and they belong to him. Verse two, I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these, this 144,000, who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Let's pause there. So John is giving us a picture of God's people, this 144,000, standing with the Lamb, who is Jesus, on Mount Zion. And this picture is given so that we have a contrast to the dragon's followers. But before we get to that contrast, we have to make an interpretive decision about this group of people. There are two main interpretive decisions that you can choose from. The first being a literal interpretation that when John says he saw this group of 144,000 men who were virgins, that we're talking about a literal group of 144,000 guys who were celibate, literally standing with Jesus on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And these men are worshipers of Jesus, and they are alive in the end times, and they have refused to worship the dragon they are on Team Lamb. That's the first interpretation, I would venture to say that's the, probably the most popular modern interpretation, but that is not the most popular historic interpretation. We've talked about this a lot. 
But this is the same group from Revelation chapter seven. The historic interpretation of this is that this is not a group of super Christians that got saved during a period of tribulation and were marked in some physical way by God. This 144,000 is a complete whole number that represents God's people, Jew and Gentile. What we're looking at is God's people. Not a small subsect, not a special group that has been chosen out. This is God's people who have persevered during a time of great tribulation on the earth and they have not given themselves over to worship the dragon. That's the second interpretation, symbolic. So you can pick, literal or symbolic. And we won't have a fight about it. I fall more on the symbolic side. And the reason why is because this book is primarily symbolic. The only time it's not symbolic is when it tells you that it's not being symbolic, it's being literal. There are times when symbolic number, numbers transfer over into some kind of literal understanding or sense, but anytime that happens, there is some root or precedent earlier in scripture in the Old Testament where a symbolic number was rooted into something literal. A great example is the number seven. Why is the number seven symbolic? Because there were a literal seven days of creation, and when they were all done, God said, this is good. And so that number became symbolic of things that were complete and good. Does that make sense? So symbolism, points to some form of literalism, but when we read these, we don't read them, I would argue, in an incredibly literal sense. So what we have is at the end of time, we have a picture from Revelation 13 of the followers of the dragon, this group that has given themselves over to the worship of the beast, to the worship of idols, to the worship of immorality, and to war. And we have this other group, this group of followers who are worshipers of the Lamb. Now what can we learn from this group from verses one through five? What does John see in the vision, symbolically, that communicates literal things about God's people that should be true now, but most certainly will be true at the end of time? Well, we're told that they sing a new song of salvation and they sing it loud. They are a singing group of people. We're told that they sing so loud that it sounds like thunder to the enemy. Harpists blaring at the top of their lungs the supremacy of Jesus and nobody else. There is none higher or more glorious or more filled with majesty than the true Trinity. There is no comparison. When the nations look at the Antichrist and say, who is like him? They're deceiving themselves because the only one who should receive that kind of worship is the lamb. There really is none like the lamb. So these group of people are worshiping him. They also are people who have, not, who have not defiled themselves in sexual immorality. We're told that when John sees them, he sees them as virgins. But we're not looking at literal guys who have not given themselves of their marriage, partly because that interpretation would, would lead us to understand that earlier parts in scripture, that marriage is something that you shouldn't celebrate or even work towards. What we're seeing here is not a contrary teaching to marriage, biblical marriage. What we're seeing here is the idea of a group of people being virgins, meaning they have not given themselves over to the sexual immorality that the whore of Babylon has been selling and peddling at every corner city across the globe from the point that Jesus rose from the dead and to the point that he returns. That's what he's saying. He's saying that the people of God don't have time to give their hearts over to the sexual immorality that this world is selling. That the dragon is fueling, is financing. The people of God have no interest in it. They don't defile themselves with that. 
We're told that they are a spotless bride for Christ and that they follow him everywhere. They haven't given themselves over to the dragon in worship. In fact, the things that come out of their mouths are not blasphemy like uh, the people of the dragon in Revelation 13. The stuff that comes out of these people's mouth are, uh, are zero lies and their record is completely blameless. You see the picture that John is trying to communicate about God's people? These are a people who are ready to be a bride for Christ. These are not a people who have given themselves over to the affections of the world, who have had an, an, a spiritual affair with the world and have spent all of their time indulging in the immorality of the world and also calling themselves a bride of Christ. No, this church is spotless and ready for her husband to return. That's the picture. And it's a glorious picture. The problem is that this picture isn't true right now, is it? So what's it gonna take to get the church there? Well, historically, what has it always taken for the church to get there? Tribulation, testing, purifying. The same thing that it's always required for God's people to realize, I didn't realize how much of my heart was given over to the things of this world until the heat was turned up and I realized that I'm giving my heart over to the things of this world. When trials and tribulations start increasing, they have a way of shining lights on things about us that we were sure were not true but suddenly become blatantly true. This is the reason why your Father who loves you gives you trials and tribulations. For the perfecting of the saints. And he allows it on a worldwide scale because the Father is not going to give his Son a bride that is a harlot. The Father is going to give his Son a spotless bride. Now the question we have here is why is John showing us this contrast? Why are we seeing this stark contrast between the people of the world and the people of God? It's because the interlude that I talked about in Revelation, the end of Revelation 11, is starting to come to an end. So imagine if I'm telling you a story about a series of events that's going to take place. At some point in the series of events, I'm starting to look around and I'm realizing that you guys aren't really understanding the gravity of where we're going. So I'm gonna pause in the story and I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna fill in the context a little bit. That's what we have in Revelation 12 through 14. John is saying, here's what God's gonna do on the earth. He's gonna release these seals as a way to call the nations to repentance, as a way to show them, you really want us to, to, to worship idolatry? These are what these idols can provide for you. I'm going to allow you to experience the fullness of what it's like to worship an idol when they can't come through for you when times get tough, and I'm gonna let times get tough. And then I'm gonna blow a series of trumpets because this thing isn't gonna go on forever. I'm not gonna let the nations continue to throw their nose up at my son who died for their sins and say, I don't want you and I don't want your ways. So I'm going to allow my angels to blow a series of trumpets that will increase the tribulation across the globe. I'm gonna mark my people so these trumpet tribulations will not mark, will not touch my people, but they will touch the nations so that hopefully they will then be called to repentance. But at the end of the trumpets, when the last one blows, that's it. My son is coming back to punish sin, to establish justice on the earth and to gather his people unto himself. When that last trumpet blows, that's it. There is no more time. You were given ample time. When he returns, he will return with a series of seven bowls of wrath that are gonna be poured out in judgment on the earth as he's returning. But I don't know that you fully understand how bloody these bowls of wrath are gonna get. So let me give some context to what's happening on the earth before we talk about those bowls. And then we have this interlude. And the interlude is the dragon has started making war with the people of God on earth. And he's rallying support from the nations and the nations are following him. And by the end of time, 
Everybody on planet Earth wants to worship the beast and the dragon and not God. So what is God to do when the entire world, that are, anyone that is not marked with him, not his people, have said, I'm going to take the mark of the dragon and I don't want anything you have to sell. I'm not interested in following you. I want to follow this dragon. What is the Lord to do? So the interlude is coming to an end and God is showing John through this vision that we have now come up to the period of time. Now we're back up to this period where the seventh trumpet is just about to blow. And here's what we have, guys. We've got the entire world on two teams. There's nobody in the middle. Everyone has picked a side. And the last trumpet is going to blow and Jesus is going to return. What's going to happen when he returns? What is it going to look like? Well, we're given a parable, but before we see that, a series of angels in John's vision proclaim things over the earth just before his return. So we're right at the period of time before that seventh trumpet blows and John sees a vision of the angels proclaiming certain things over the earth before the end happens. So let's go to Revelation chapter 14 and let's look at verse six. He says, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and every tribe and language and people. And this angel said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And then a second angel followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And everybody drank except for those marked by the lamb who did not defile themselves and lived as virgins. And another angel, verse nine, a third followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast, and this is important, don't get lost up or don't get lost and just read too quickly through this. And this is like a biblical reading principle. If you're on one of those biblical reading principles where we read a couple chapters every day, that's awesome. Keep doing that. But do it slow. Just because it says you have to finish in a year doesn't mean you have to finish it in a year. Okay, just because you can't get through all the reading in a day, that's okay. The goal is not to, to check a box. The goal is to get this inside of you so it starts messing with you and changing you. So slow down and read what it's saying. The third angel proclaims a message over the earth, and here's the message. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead and his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath. Pour it out full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and Ever. And they have no rest. Day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. So here is a call for the endurance of the saints because guys, you don't want any part of that. Endure. Don't be fooled. Don't be duped. Don't take some mark. Don't switch teams. Don't lose faith. Endure because you don't want that punishment. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this down. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest 
from their labors for their deeds follow them. Another contrast of the difference between God's people and the dragon's people. In the final judgment, God's people get rest and the dragon's followers get torment. Now let's study this for a second. The first angel just before Jesus returns, and this is a vision, so there's not like just before the last trumpet blows, then some angel's gonna be spotted in the sky proclaiming the gospel. This is a vision John has about the proclamation of the gospel worldwide just before Jesus returns. We're told that Jesus won't return until the gospel is spread across all the nations to the four corners of the earth. So this angel is proclaiming that truth that Jesus taught about. The idea that just before he returns, an angel will go across the entire earth and will proclaim to the four corners of the nations, this is your last shot. Judgment is about to arrive and your only hope is to come out from under that judgment by trusting Jesus. This is the message of the gospel and it's to every person from every tribe across the entire globe. You don't have to drink the cup of wrath. Jesus drank it for you. Do you remember that scene in Matthew 26 in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is praying, Lord, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. You know what cup he was talking about? He was talking about the cup of wrath. He drank the wrath on your behalf by going to the cross so you don't have to. All of the wrath of God against mankind and sin has been satisfied in Christ. The cup has already been drank and God is inviting the nations to come and accept what Christ has done on your behalf. And here's what's fascinating about this. All you have to do is believe and you can come out from under that wrath. So we can't say God is so cruel. Look what he's doing to the nations these nations who have rejected him, these nations who have elevated themselves above him, who have killed his own followers. Look what, do you see the way our modern culture makes us redefined evil as good and good as evil? And it dumbs down our sense of justice to the point where we feel like, well, maybe we don't know his story. Maybe he's, I know everyone calls him a monster, but like let's make a Netflix special about him and, and then he just, he won't be so scary. Maybe we can understand him. And all it does is water down our sense of justice so that no one needs it. There is no sense of right and wrong or righteousness and sin. There is no sense of offense before a holy God for being a creation that has rejected the creator. There is no sense for the, the gravity of offense that the creation would worship creation and not the creator. All that gets washed away. And we get offended when we read about his wrath against those who have rejected him. And yet, this angel's proclaiming, guys, you don't have to. You don't gotta drink it. Just come out from under his wrath by joining the lamb. Trust the lamb. And then the next angel comes and proclaims the future of this. And we talked about Babylon. When this was written, Babylon wasn't even around. Babylon's not around now, but Babylon is not a place. It's an idea. It's a spirit, it's a heart, it's a people group. And this infiltrates not just a city, but every city. Every city is Babylon. Every city has proclaimed, we have elevated ourselves above God. God's not gonna return and say, man, look at what you humans have been up to. I never in a million years thought that you would have turned dinosaur bones into gasoline. Look at you guys, amazing. Guns, that's amazing. I never thought black powder would have exploded and you could have put lead, that was pretty fantastic. You guys are something else. That's not how he's going to return. He's not infatuated with humanity and the ways we have created to destroy ourselves. He's coming back in judgment and the second angel proclaims over the city. 
Babylon, which is every city, you have fallen. You have elevated yourselves and you've built castles out of gold and you've, you've invested in your own selves and you've rejected your creator. Fallen, fallen, fallen is Babylon. Now this is an allusion back to the Old Testament database of Isaiah 21.9. When Isaiah talks about seeing the, the joy of the people of God, of seeing the rider come up on the hillside and declare Babylon has fallen. There's a joy in God's people when the city finally falls because the city has been torture to them for the last period of time. And so this declaration has a two side, there's two, two, two sides of this. It is, it, is, it is a death sentence to the city and it is a source of joy for the people of God because their torment is finally coming to an end. And then we see this last angel proclaim that if you reject the lamb, it means you're serving the dragon and there is punishment coming for you. At the end, there is only two teams and those who serve the dragon will suffer the full wrath of the lamb. And guys, it's not for a short period of time. And I told you before we prayed and before we even started that this is heavy and bloody and we haven't even gotten to the bloody part but I want you to just wrestle with the gravity of what we're talking about here. Because what we're told from the Bible, not some guy who has a YouTube channel and is convinced that the Greek was translated wrong 50 years ago, what the Bible is telling us is that hell is a real place and it's forever. And anyone who does not get marked by the lamb and follow Jesus will spend eternity in torment and suffering. There is a popular theological argument being made. It's not new, it's just everything gets recycled around. But there's this theory, this idea called annihilationism. Maybe you've heard of it. This idea that at the end, those who have been marked by the dragon, who don't follow the lamb, they won't suffer for eternity. They will be annihilated or destroyed. That a loving God couldn't torture forever. And that's appealing to a generation that doesn't like the idea of suffering or having to own up to the things that you have made decisions for in your life. For a generation that wants somebody else to pay their debt off, we don't get the principle of God bringing justice. But the truth is that the Bible is pretty clear. That hell is eternal, it is filled with suffering that the torment will be pulled out, poured out in full strength and it will last day and night and they will have no rest. That's what the Bible teaches. And guys, that's what's on the line. That's why this is so serious, because of what's on the line. Because the repercussions of telling God, I don't want you, I don't want your son, and I, I would rather take my chances by standing up with my own righteousness and all the good, I'm pretty sure that all the good things I've done in my life have outweighed the bad things, and I'm gonna take my chances drinking the cup myself. That is a dangerous choice. And there is eternal punishment on the other side of it. And the sobering reality is speaking directly to the church in verses 12 and 13. John switches after he sees this vision and he, 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 he pivots in 12 and 13 to a call to the church. Guys, because of how serious this is, do not lose the faith. Do not turn your back on the lamb. If the world offers you a savior that kinda looks like Jesus, but doesn't require death and suffering, doesn't require you to go through tribulations or take up your own cross and follow him, don't buy it. It will end in suffering. It looks pretty and easy now, but it will, uh, it will end in no eternal rest. You will end in suffering. There is only one way to end in eternal rest, and it is to follow the path of suffering like your Savior, Jesus Christ. The suffering might even mean that you die for your faith, but if you do, you are promised eternal rest. 
Now we're gonna pick back up with the events following the seventh trumpet. So the question for 14 through 20 is, now that we have these two groups of people, now that the angels have proclaimed over the nations what's about to take place, we know the seventh trumpet's gonna sound, but what's it gonna look like when he returns? We know from the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11 that the, the sky is gonna crack open, the temple is gonna be seen, we know he's gonna return, but like, what's that look like? Is there some imagery or symbolism or parable? Is there an apocalyptic parable that can help us understand what this return is gonna be look like? Well, I'm glad you asked, because there is. It looks like a harvest. The return of Jesus looks like a harvest. Let's read it, go to verse 14. It says, then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Who's that? That's Jesus. That's our king. The sky is open, and the temple is fully cleared to everybody, and Jesus is standing there, and what does he have in his hand? A sickle. Now, is this literally going to happen? Is this guy going to open? He's holding a sickle? No, not, not literally. We're seeing a parable of what his return is going to be like. It's going to be like the clouds opening. He's going to show up in a cloud. The angel said in Acts, why are you staring at the sky? He's going to return in the same way that he's ascending on a cloud. So we know this is Jesus. We know this is the moment he returns. And we see that when he returns, he's got a sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Why is an angel telling Jesus now it's time? Because Jesus told us that nobody knows the day or the hour. Not the, not the son, not the angels, only the father knows. And the father has commanded this angel to deliver the message that the time has come and history has come to a close. Son, it is time to reap the harvest. And what does he do in verse 16? He who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Now this picture shows Jesus on a white cloud with a sickle ready for the harvest. This picture mirrors what we're told by Jesus in Mark uh, 4, 26 through 29, that the end of the age is gonna be this great, this great grain harvest. When the grain is ripe, the sickle is going to come and he's going to reap the harvest of his people. This is also uh, uh, mirrored in his teaching um, in Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31, when we are told that the Son of Man is gonna be seen coming on the clouds with this loud trumpet call. He's gonna send his angels out and they're gonna gather the four. He's gonna gather his people from the four corners of the earth. Jesus is seen coming on a cloud, ready to harvest the fields. And I think this parable explains what Paul is teaching in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. When he says, when that trumpet blows, the dead in Christ are gonna rise first and then those who are left will meet him in the air. That word meet is used three times in the New Testament. And every time it's used, it's described as a group of people coming out to meet a king or Paul in the book of Acts. And once they meet and see him, they follow him back into the city. So what we're seeing is the harvest looks like God coming back for his people and gathering them for the nations, meeting him in the air and following him back for the final judgment on earth. That's the picture in our mind. And what's fascinating about this, the fascinating picture of this harvest essentially being the resurrection or the rapture it's contrasted in the next verses with a second harvest. Now follow me, this is one event. This all happens when the skies open, the temple is revealed, the trumpet is blown, Jesus returns, but his return is gonna look very different for both groups of people. I told you, there are God's people and there are the dragon's people, and for God's people, it's gonna look like a great grain harvest gathered in to meet the sun. But for those who are marked by the dragon, this isn't going to be a pleasant experience. 
Let's go to verse 17. It says, then another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. Well, that's an issue right there because you don't harvest grapes with a sickle. Not unless you're not interested in what the grapes have to provide because they're all sour. Verse 19, so the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside of the city. What city? God's city. These are followers of the dragon. And blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia, which is about 184 miles. This picture shows a second harvest of the earth. And this harvest is the wrath of God being poured out on the nations for giving their allegiance and affection to the dragon. Now this isn't the first time we see this imagery. We're told by Jesus about the first harvest of his people, of the wheat. But we're also told of another harvest. Isaiah 63, two through six. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who tread the winepress? Well, I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel for the day of my vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. This is the prophet Isaiah speaking about the day of the Lord and what it will be like for those who refuse to follow the lamb. Let's go to Joel 3, verse 13 through 16. Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread for the wine press is full. The vats overflow for their, e their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. The whole earth is in the valley of decision. What are you gonna do about this man, Jesus? Are you gonna follow him or are you gonna follow the imposter? For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, but the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to the people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. At the end of the age when Jesus returns after that last trumpet blows, it will be a glorious day of salvation for his people and it will be a torturous day of sorrow and suffering for those who have rejected the lamb. Now, I want to pause for a minute and reflect on this. Because what we're seeing here is two teams. We're seeing the team lamb and we're seeing team dragon. One is destined for rest and one is destined for suffering. We're also seeing two harvests summed up in one single event. There's a harvest of salvation and there's a harvest of crushing. And we're seeing that the return of Jesus is going to be glorious for some and unbelievably bloody for others. And the question that maybe you have on your heart or maybe you don't even know how to articulate is this, why is it so bloody? Why did the prophets Isaiah and Joel see it like this? Why is God revealing to John what the earth will look like when he returns for those who have rejected him? Because there is a relationship between love and wrath. Let me explain what I mean. For those of you in here that have children, I want you to picture your child that you love with all of your heart, that you do anything for. And now I want you to picture someone trying to kill your child, or sexually abuse your child, or take your child from you. What would you describe as your level of wrath 
to the person who wants to take and harm that thing that you love. Do you see that connection in the heart of God's people between the things that you love and the wrath you would respond to if that thing is harmed or hurt? That didn't just come from nowhere. That came from God. And he has the same feeling for his children that he loves. And his desire is for all the nations to come and be his children. But that is not the nation's desire. The nation's desire is to join someone else's team and to turn their hatred on God's people and create war on them. And for a period of many, many years make war against God's people and pile up their bodies in the streets, murdering Christians over and over and over. This seems foreign to us where we live, but this is pretty regular in certain parts of the world. What is God's desire? What is his response? How does he feel towards those who perpetuate violence against his people? It's wrath, and you may not like it, but that's what it is. This is referenced again in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9. Paul is teaching the church in Thessalonica about the return of Jesus and what he's going to do when he returns. And he says, since indeed God considered it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not know, do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you was believed. Go back to that last slide, please. Look at six and seven. God considers it just to repay the afflictions with those who have afflicted you. Why is it so bloody? Why all the wrath? Because God sees it just to repay the nations with wrath for all the wrath that they have perpetuated against him, his son, and his followers. And to grant relief to you. So the twofold, the, the, the return of Christ has two sides to it. It is a just punishment to the nations who have perpetuated violence against God's people. And it is a relief for God's people that those who want war and violence are finally getting punishment. Now, the question for us today is what in the world do we do with this? Because what John is showing us is pretty heavy stuff. When I look at this, I, I, where, where's the Jesus who's feeding the 5,000? Where's the Jesus who's sitting with little children? Where, where, where's the Jesus who's dying on the cross and shedding his blood? Why is all of the blood being shed those who follow the dragon? Why is there so much warrior Jesus? Because he came first as a humble servant to invite the nations to trust him but there is an expiration date on that invitation. And that's the reality that all of us have to live with. That not a single person in this room is promised tomorrow. You're not promised health for tomorrow and you're not promised you'll even wake up tomorrow. So you have to make a decision to make the most out of every second of every day that God gives you because you'd not promised another one. And that doesn't just go for you, it goes for the nations too. There is an expiration date on the invitation that God is extending to your coworker or your neighbor. And God in his, in his wisdom and his mercy wants you to go to work with him. He is working on that neighbor's heart and that coworker's heart, but he wants you to come to work with him and he wants you to speak life into him. He wants to use you as a lampstand in this guy's life to show him the glorious majesty of what salvation and eternal rest looks like. And in, in the hopes that he will look at that and say, I don't have that, I, I want that. I don't, ha I don't have peace. 
All I have is anxiety, and I solve that anxiety with a bottle. I drink myself to sleep every night. I'm unhappy, I'm on my fifth marriage, nothing's working, I've got no money, I have to be at court tomorrow. Every decision I have made for my own life has provided me nothing. And then he sends, God sends you across his path and you're filled with joy and peace and you don't have everything together but you still walk with a sense of purpose like somebody has filled you with something that they don't have and they want it. But the reality is that not everyone is going to want it. There is coming a day when time will be up. And what John is showing us from Revelation chapter 14 is I want you to consider the end. Look at this parable and let it get on the inside of you because there is no better way to be disturbed and motivated and fueled towards evangelism and prayer like fully knowing what's coming on this earth that no one can stop. I want you to picture yourself, people of God, as standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb at the end of the age, singing your heart out so loud that it sounds like thunder on the horizon. That's you. And I want you to consider hearing the angel's proclamation over the earth for the entire church, period that there is one way to salvation and Babylon's gonna fall and if you follow the dragon, there's eternal punishment. And I want you to look at this bloody scene of what it will look like for the nations to be thrown into the great wine press of the wrath of God and be trodden outside of the city. And I want you to smell the iron and the blood in this scene as it flows through the streets. And I want that picture to sink deep inside your, your soul so that the next time you feel the Holy Spirit tell you, share the gospel with this person, you don't say, I don't have time. I don't know what to say. I'll just mess it up. There is too much on the line to excuse yourself out of the invitation to share the greatest message that has ever been told. That's the weight of Revelation 14. It is a bloody war scene so that everyone on planet Earth knows what's coming and they know what they're choosing. Because if you don't want the lamb, this is what's headed your way. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.